Bible reading. My name is Simplicity Benning, and I'm from the President Park Group. And our Bible reading today will come from Exodus 12, verse 1 to 42, and then continue from 13, verse 1 to 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some food of, they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorsteps, two doorposts, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you were, and when I see blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from, from, off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but that everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you and you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, 
the person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel on the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through the to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on, your, on the lintel and on the two door posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep, keep this service and when the children say to you, what do you mean by the service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborns of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go from among my people, among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloak on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sarkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, but flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor they nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
So, the same, so this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all people of Israel throughout their generations. Chapter 13, verse 1 to 2, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborns, whatever is the, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both men, man and beast, is mine. This is the word of the Lord. Simplicity, thanks for that reading. And uh, Vincent, for the prayer, you guys did President Park proud. I'm sure they're rooting for you. Uh, guys, if you, are, if you live somewhere in the area of President Park and you're looking for the world's finest life group, please speak to them after the service. We really do encourage you to join a life group. Uh, this is not a season in which you can struggle along on your own. I'm sure you figured that out by now. We need each other. President Parker represented here in the front. Come and see them if you're looking for a home. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and then we'll look at that extensive passage uh, that Simplicity read for us. Father, once again, uh, we are humbled before your word. Uh, not humble enough, Lord. Uh, not by half. And so we need your spirit to be working, uh, to be confronting us with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and his lordship and his suffering servanthood for our salvation. Uh, we, uh, in our better moments, we want to be changed. We want to be a transformed people. Father, please, will you be merciful to us this morning? And um, please, will you be with us in the power of your Holy Spirit? Father, we think especially of those in our church family who are struggling with COVID, both young and old. Uh, Father, please, will you, will you be with them, especially at this time, um, and encourage them through the love of this redeemed family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's important for, for two reasons. Uh, it's important because we come to the Lord's table a little bit later on, and that's always important. Uh, it's important because we come to the end of our series in Exodus. Uh, Exodus 12, this chapter, serves both of those important functions. We'll never understand the Lord's table unless we understand the Passover. And we'll never understand Exodus 1 to 11 unless we get a handle on Exodus 12. So in those two ways, at least, this whole series comes together today, this morning. Exodus 12 is, I'm sure it's obvious to us all by now, Exodus 12 is about the Passover. But what is the Passover? What does it actually mean? And what does it mean for us here, sitting here this morning with our masks on, in the midst of COVID, mid-rant 2021, with the infection rate climbing and all of our social problems and our personal problems and our personal joys and triumphs, what does it mean for us, this event that took place thousands of years ago? What does it mean? I think there are at least seven ways to answer that question uh, because Exodus 12 answers it in at least seven ways. Actually, last night I discovered an eighth, uh, but this sermon is long enough by far, so you'll be glad to know I'm sparing you the eighth. If you really are interested, you can come and chat to me. It's quite an important one, um, so come and chat to me afterwards if you're interested. But at least these seven, right? So here they are. I'll give them to you, then we'll work through them. Here are the seven ways 
that we answer the question, what does the Passover mean for us? And it's in the text. It means judgment on the gods of Egypt, deliverance for the firstborn, deliverance into abundance, deliverance as a mixed multitude, a call to service, a call to worship, and a call to remember. Some of you take notes. I'll go again. Judgment on the gods of Egypt, deliverance for the firstborn, deliverance into abundance, deliverance as a mixed multitude, a call to service, a call to worship, a call to remember. We start with judgment on the gods of Egypt. How do we know that that's what the Passover is about? Verse 12 is as plain as the nose on your face. There it is. This is what it says. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So it says it plainly, explicitly, but then there's some other details that say exactly the same thing, that are not so plain, but they're there. Goats and lambs were actually Egyptian deities. They were Egyptian gods. And as we know, they were slaughtered in the Passover meal. That slaughter symbolizes judgment on the gods of Egypt. The Passover meal, you would have heard as simplicity read, was a meal of one lamb eaten by one family unit in one household. Not a single bone of that animal was to be broken. It was to be roasted rather than boiled. Both of those were to protect the integrity, the oneness of the animal. Now, what those details are telling us is that this meal was an act of obedience and allegiance to the one true God and a rejection of the many gods of Egypt. An act of allegiance and obedience to the one true God, a rejection of the many gods of Egypt. It's about the oneness of the meal. There's more. You'll remember from uh, weeks gone by, each of the first nine plagues was a judgment on specific gods in Egypt. The tenth plague is no different. Firstborn sons in the ancient world were a symbol of a nation's current and future strength. By the death of its firstborn, Egypt would be crippled and its gods shown to be impotent. The Passover was a judgment on the gods of Egypt. But if we've read beyond Exodus 12, and many of us here this morning have, we'll recognize it wasn't a final judgment. It wasn't an ultimate judgment because the gods of Egypt were simply replaced by the golden calf. And then the gods of Moab, and then the gods of Canaan, and then Assyria, and then Babylon, and on and on and on through the centuries, until, by the death of God's firstborn son, Satan himself was crippled and his demons shown to be impotent. Colossians 2 verse 15 reads as follows, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them all, triumphing over them by the cross. In the age-old battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, Jesus wins the final victory. The final victory, ultimate, once and for all. He wins it. It is won. It is finished. But he does that in the most unexpected way. 
Listen to John Stott. He describes it like this. Look at him there, spread-eagled and skewered on his cross, robbed of all freedom of movement, strung up with nails or ropes or both, pinned there and powerless. It appears to be total defeat. If there is victory, it is the victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice, and brutality. Yet the Christian claim is that the reality is the opposite of the appearance. You remember Bavink from a few weeks ago? His description of faith, he said, faith is the struggle against the appearance of things. Nowhere is that truer than at the cross. Nowhere is that more obvious than at the cross. Faith is the struggle against the appearance of things. So how can what appears to be utter defeat and humiliation and shame actually be victory in reality? Here's Stott again. By his self-giving love for others, he overcame evil with good. Again, when the combined forces of Rome and Jerusalem were arrayed against him, he could have met power with power. For Pilate had no ultimate authority over him. More than 12 legions of angels would have sped to his rescue if he had summoned them. And he could have stepped down from that cross, as in jest they challenged him to do. But he declined any resort to worldly power. He was crucified in weakness, though the weakness of God was stronger than human strength. Thus he refused either to disobey God or to hate his enemies or to imitate the world's use of power. By his obedience, his love, and his meekness, he won a great victory over the powers of evil. He remained free, uncontaminated, uncompromised. The devil could gain no hold on him and had to concede defeat. The God of this age, the devil, has no claim over you None, because he has no claim over Jesus. And you are in Jesus. You are with Jesus. His victory is yours. You are no longer a slave to the false gods of this world, to sex, to money, to reputation, to power, to lifestyle. The strong man has been bound you are free. And we have a beautiful picture of that liberation in the Passover. It was a judgment on the gods of Egypt. Passover was a judgment on the gods of Egypt. It was also a deliverance for the firstborn. So Exodus 12, 26 says this, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. What do you mean by this service? That's our question, isn't it? What do we mean by the Passover? What does it mean? When the children of Israel in later generations asked that very question, one answer they were supposed to get is this. He spared our houses. 
That's what Passover means. It means the angel of death, the destroyer, passed over. Passed over the houses of Israel. Now why would that be? Why would the angel of death even need to pass over the houses of Israel? Weren't they just the innocent victims of oppression? And why this elaborate meal? If the tenth plague was only about judgment on Egypt, couldn't the Lord just have left Israel alone, like he did in some of the other plagues? Remember, the flies didn't go to Goshen. Why the blood on the lintels? What this suggests to us is that the Exodus is more than just a socio-political deliverance. It's not less than that. It's not less than a socio-political deliverance, but it certainly is more. And we need to recognize that because that's often how it's been understood throughout history. The Exodus has been used as inspiration for all sorts of emancipation movements. The Reformers, the Puritans, the U.S. Civil Rights Movement, even here in our own country. The Exodus has been understood in those terms. I once listened to President Ramaphosa. He was talking about Afrikaner nationalism. And he, he was talking about how when the movement began, it was a noble force for good for the liberation of an oppressed people. But somewhere along the way, something horrible went wrong, and the oppressed became the oppressor. How did that happen? Now, I'm sure it's massively complex, and we would need a whole conference of historians to help us understand. But if I were to hazard a layman's guess, I would say that a misreading of Exodus had something to do with it. The Exodus story was just as important to Afrikaner nationalism as it had been to so many other liberation movements. The problem was that the story was understood to be nothing more than socio-political deliverance. Socio-political oppression, socio-political freedom. It was understood in those terms. Deliverance was from the enemy outside. But in reality, the Exodus story, and the Passover in particular, is not just about the enemy outside. It's also about the enemy within. The Israelites needed to be delivered from Egypt. That much is certainly true. But they also needed to be delivered from a much deeper slavery. As do we. Slavery to our own sin. It's why 16 of the 40 Chapters in the Exodus are devoted to the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle about? It's about how a holy God dwells with a sinful people. That's why before we even get to the tabernacle in Exodus, blood. We need blood on the lintels of the doorposts to escape the angel of death. And of course, in reality, the blood of a lamb, however spotless, is not enough. The Hebrew fathers had to continue with blood sacrifices throughout the generations that followed, over and over and over again, endlessly. Exodus 13, verse 11. If you have a Bible with you, turn there. If you don't, I'll just read it for you. It says this, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that, the f that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals, that our males shall be the Lord's. 
Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time you when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean, our question, you shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem." They had to continue with the substitute of firstborn animals for their firstborn sons over and over, repeatedly through generations and generations upon generations until a fitting sacrifice could be found, a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. We go back to Colossians chapter 2, this time from verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame, by triumphing over them in Christ. Did you notice how the cross defeats both the enemy outside and the enemy inside. The cross defeats the enemy outside by defeating the enemy within. Jesus defeats the devil by dealing with our sin. That's how he disarms the devil. The devil has no claim on us because Jesus has dealt with our sin. Jesus Christ is the firstborn son. And he's the firstborn son who is claimed by the angel of death so that we might be redeemed, so that we might go free. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have you come to terms with him? And let's not assume. Have you come to terms with him? Or when you look around at the world, do you just get angry with the miserable sinners out there? Or do you ever stop to think, what I see out there is a mirror of what I find in here. And what's in here is a microcosm of what I see out there. Jesus deals with both. He deals with the tyranny in the world by first dealing with the tyrant in you. Freedom starts with liberation from yourself. It doesn't end there. It cannot end there. It shouldn't end there. But that's where it starts. Third, the Passover. We're thinking about the meaning of the Passover. The Passover is about deliverance into abundance. Exodus 12, verse 36, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites plundered the Egyptians. When they left Egypt, they took with them clothing and gold and silver and jewelry 
These were the spoils of victory. The spoils of the Lord's victory over the gods of Egypt. And what, we might ask, did Israel do with the spoils of the Lord's victory? What did they do with it? Jump forward a number of chapters, Exodus 32, verse 1. We fast forwarding. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And he received gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They used the spoils, the spoils of God's victory over the idols of Egypt to do what? To make another idol. How perverse is the human heart? There is hope. By the end of Exodus, this is how they use the spoils of victory. Chapter 35, verse 21. So three chapters, fast forward. 35, verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of the meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. What changed? In Exodus 32, they were devoting the blessings of God to the worship of false gods. In Exodus 35, they freely give all they have to the worship of the one true God. So what makes the difference? How do we get from Exodus 32 to 35? Two things. Judgment and intercession. Moses first leads judgment on the people, and then Moses intercedes for mercy on the people. Again, we get back to that awkward question, what about us? What are we doing with the spoils of God's victory in Christ? What are you doing with the blessings God has given you? Because, the, because of Jesus, we understand every one of our blessings to be part of the spoils of his victory. So what are we doing with them? Let's start with our gold and silver and clothing and jewelry. Let's start with money. What are you doing with the money God has given you? Is it a case of I earned it? So I'll decide, I'll make sure of the house, the car, the kids' education. I'll organize the lifestyle I'm after, and then I'll give the change to the Lord. Is it that? We have to be honest with ourselves. There's no point in deceiving ourselves. You can't deceive the Lord. So let's be honest with ourselves. Is it that? Or is it you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, beyond our wildest imaginings. Yet for your sake, for my sake, he became poor, so that you and I, by his poverty, might become rich. Which is it? What about forgiveness? 
That's another one of the key spoils of victory, isn't it? Do you pay it forward? Or are you like the unmerciful servant, busy choking another fellow servant who owes you 10 rand, conveniently forgetting about the 10,000 rand you owe the Lord? Are you full of bitterness? Are you, are you, are you stewing, marinating in this bitterness? Are you bearing grudges? What if God bore grudges? What if he kept a record of your wrongs? He does. But that record has been cancelled. It's been nailed to the cross. You've been forgiven so that you are now free to forgive. And the more you do, the freer you'll be. Now, there's actually empirical evidence, studies coming out of Harvard University on the physiological benefits of forgiveness, physical benefits, mental health benefits, a whole litany of benefits, physiological benefits, psychosomatic benefits of forgiveness. The Bible's been saying this thing for 2,000, more, 3,500 years longer. Harvard just arrived. There are subjective benefits to forgiveness. They're part of the freedom we enjoy when we forgive, but they pale in comparison. They are nothing in comparison to the objective blessing of being right with God and with each other. One more spoiler of victory. Love. What are you doing with the love God has shown you in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because in Christ, he has showered you with love. It is like the Congo River of love running through your heart. What have you done with that love? You know, when people first meet you and they get to know you, is this something they will recognize about you? Will they go away saying, yes, someone who is just full of love comes out of their pores? Is that something they would say? If not, why not? Haven't you got endless love coming into your life? So where is it getting stuck? What's the blockage? Why is it not getting to others? And that's the question for all of God's blessings in Christ, for all the spoils of victory. Here's the question. Are you a river or are you a dam? Are you a dam or are you a river? If they are difficult questions to hear, if you're squirming in your seat just a little bit, welcome to the club. It's a club as old as Israel. But do you remember what made the two things that made the difference for Israel? Do you remember what they were? Because they're the same two realities that are going to make a difference for us. Do you remember what they were? Judgment and intercession. Jesus bears the judgment for our idolatry and he intercedes for our mercy. He is constantly pleading with his Father on our behalf, on your behalf, saying, Father, forgive them. Father, do not give them what they deserve. 
Do not give her what she deserves. Do not give him what he deserves. Remember my sacrifice. Please, Father, have mercy on them. The same Jesus who died for you is interceding for you as I speak. And his father hears him in a way that he didn't even hear Moses. He hears him because he perfectly bore the judgment that fell on him. Meditate on Jesus. Drink deep of the love that he brings in both judgment and intercession. And if you do, it'll move you. It'll move us as a family from the golden calf to the free will offering of our entire lives in worship to the one true God. It'll move us. It'll make the difference. Fourth meaning of the Passover, deliverance into a mixed multitude. Exodus 12, verse 37, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And then you've got this curious statement in verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. Now, who is that? Israel and who else? Who is this mixed multitude? Well, you remember from last week, we've got every reason to believe that the mixed multitude included Egyptians whose allegiance had been won by the Lord through the process of the ten plagues. All the way through those plagues, we see hints of those in Pharaoh's court beginning to take notice of this Hebrew God. And of course, the people would have followed their leaders. So we have a mixed multitude fleeing Egypt that night. And, and when we, if in your mind's eye you picture this mixed multitude leaving Egypt, exiting Egypt, it's got to throw us back to Genesis chapter 12 and God's promise to Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Don't we see a picture of that in this mixed multitude leaving Egypt? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see it in Exodus in fact, we see it here this morning. One of the great spoils of victory for the Israelites as they left Egypt would have been the Egyptians who left with them. And it's one of God's great blessings to us in this church that we are a mixed multitude. That finally, in Christ, our differences need no longer be from each other. Our differences can now be for each other. God has given us the gift of each other. And it is a precious, priceless gift. It's a treasure. My friends, I can say to you with a clear conscience this morning that I do not want to be part of a white church. And that is not because I hate my people and I hate my culture. I don't. They're my people. It's my culture. But this is so much richer, so much richer. And in fact, I've heard senior black members of our church say exactly the same thing. They do not want to be part of just a black, black-only church. This is so much richer. We would rather be here. We are God's gift to each other. Now hear me when I say that I do not for one second think that it's all puppies and roses and that we are skipping through the fields holding hands and singing hymns together. I'm not naive. I know that we have a lot of hard work to do. 
ongoing hard work. We have to bear with one another. But this mixed multitude was bought by the blood of Christ. And it is a precious, precious gift for which we thank God. Fifth, remember there are only seven, okay? So the end is in sight. Fifth, the Passover is a call to service. We see the word used to describe Israel's slavery to Pharaoh in Exodus 1.14, so on and so on and so on. We see the word used to describe Israel's worship of the Lord in Exodus 12, 25, 26, 13, 5, 27, 19, 30, 16, so on and so on and so on. The word used to describe Israel's slavery, the word used to describe their worship of the Lord, it's the same word. It's the very same word. We looked at this a few weeks ago. What it highlights for us, the fact that it's the same word, slavery in Egypt, worship to the Lord, same word. What it highlights for us is the massive chasm between our contemporary understanding of freedom and the biblical understanding of freedom. These are worlds apart. Our understanding of freedom, you remember, is freedom from. Freedom from any constraint on me and my desire and ability to be me. Right? That's how we understand freedom. There must be no constraints. Get out of my way. I'm free. The biblical understanding of freedom is freedom for. In the Bible, freedom from is actually just another form of slavery. Right? Freedom from any constraint of being me, that's just another form of slavery, slavery to self. Freedom for, in the Bible, freedom for service to the right master is the only true freedom there is. Listen to how George MacDonald explains freedom from our understanding of freedom as just another slavery. This is what he writes. The one principle of hell is this. I am my own. I am my own king and my own subject. I am the center from which go out all my thoughts. I am the object and end of my thoughts. Back upon me is the alpha and omega of life my thoughts return. My own glory is and ought to be my chief care, my ambition, to gather the regards of men to the one center, myself. That's freedom from. That if, we, if we're honest, that's how we understand freedom. Now listen to the Heidelberg Catechism describe freedom for, biblical freedom. Here's the question. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own but belong, body and soul, in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see the chasm? The Passover is a call to freedom for, to call to a particular kind of service. Exodus 4, 22 and 23, these were key verses for us a few weeks ago. Let me read them again. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go. Why? That he may serve me. That he may serve me. To fully understand the call to service, we need to understand the role of the firstborn son. Because remember, in Exodus, the Lord is revealing himself as creator. 
He is sovereign Lord and lover of the whole human family. And Israel was the firstborn in that family. Now, what is the role of the firstborn in any family? What's the role of the firstborn? The firstborn is to represent the children to the parents. And the parents to the children. The firstborn stands in that generation gap. Represents the parents to the children and the children to the parents. In the same way, Israel as firstborn was supposed to represent God to the world and the world to God. This is how one rabbi understands Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23. He writes this, Moses said, he said these words to Pharaoh at his very first audience with him. He did so because it truly was God's agenda in the Exodus that his child be released to serve him and thereby begin to translate divine values into human actions on the world stage. Israel would be given a Torah and taken to a land of her own. There she could build a society and mold the society according to the Torah's precepts. In so doing, she would be a living example of what it means to live the, apparent, the, the parent's agenda in the world of the child in the world of people and nations. Of course, we know that in the end, Israel failed miserably. They broke the Torah, they lost the land, they actually became a byword among the nations, a swear word, a curse word. But where Israel failed, Christ succeeded. He truly is God's firstborn son. Israel were firstborn by grace. Jesus is firstborn by nature. He represents God to man and man to God in himself, in his being. And he does it perfectly. Where Israel repelled the nations, Jesus continues to draw the nations to himself, to this very day, to the Father, through the Son. And now we who are in Christ are called to do the same. So if we were to paraphrase what the rabbi was saying, to translate it into into what it means to be a church, this is what we might say. The church is building a society, and in the power of the Spirit, this society is being molded into the likeness of Christ. So empowered, the church is a living example of what it means to live the parent's agenda in the world of the child, in the world of people and nations. We are called into the freedom of service on mission. We are redeemed into the freedom of service on mission. Sixth, sixth meaning of the Passover. The Passover is a call to worship. It's a call to worship. When you consider what the Passover is, all the things we've been reflecting on, judgment on false gods, deliverance of the Lord's people, deliverance into abundance, into a mixed multitude, this call to true freedom in service, when you consider that the Passover is all that and so much more, you can only respond as Israel did in spontaneous worship. Let me read it for you. Exodus 12, verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That's our question. You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Notice no one called them to worship. It was an instinctive, immediate response to the news of God's grace to them. How are we responding 
to the news of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ? How are we responding to the news that when he struck, he struck his firstborn and spared our houses? Can we call our response worship? Is it worthy of the name? Is it instinctive, immediate, welling up from within into all of life? The Apostle Paul helps us think about what worship is in his letter to the Romans. And I'm reading from chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Now, we could preach 10 sermons on that uh, one verse, but I just want us to see two things, two things that we need to see this morning. First, worship is all of life. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. It means that worship is practical. It touches every single aspect of our lives. Your whole life must be given over to God as if you yourself are being offered on the altar of sacrifice. Only you're a living sacrifice. Do you see? It's all of life. But secondly, notice that before worship expresses itself in all of life, it has to originate in the grace of God. What does he say? By the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. By the mercies of God, your life will never be an act of worship unless it flows from the wellsprings of God's grace. It'll never be worship. It'll just be religion. It'll just be a show for others. It'll never be worship unless it flows from the wellsprings of God's grace. What you do has to flow from what God has done and who God is. And the way we receive who God is and what he's done is in deep reflection and prayer and meditation and faith together in the family of believers. Look at how Paul calls the Romans to a life of worship. This is what he writes just before he writes Romans chapter 12 verse 1. He writes this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, it's only as he reflects on who God is and what he's done that he can then call the Romans to a life of worship. Others like the Apostle Paul have tried to put worship, our praise of God, this God who is beyond words, others have tried to put it into words. And we sang some of it earlier. Just listen to the themes of Exodus and the themes of redemption in what we sang earlier. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, calls to songs of loudest praise. Give me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. The language is so exalted, isn't it? 
We, we strain to find the words to worship God. He is beyond words. Maybe John Donne had it right when he said this. Blessed be God that he is God. Only and divinely like himself. Passover is about worship. Finally, finally, the Passover is about remembering. Because it's about judgment on false gods, deliverance for the Lord's people, deliverance into abundance, deliverance into a mixed multitude, a call to service, a wonderful call to the freedom of service. Because it's about all of that leading us into worship of the one true God. It's also about remembering. You know that when you read Exodus 12, perhaps you were struck by this, there seems to be more about the memorial meal than there is about the actual event itself. Did you notice that? Now, why would that be? It's because this event transcends itself. It's not just for that first generation, this salvation event. It's not just for that first generation. It's for every generation that would follow after. It's how every generation, this meal, the Passover meal, is how every generation after that first generation would participate in this great salvation that would lead them into worship. Passover meal is a promise that recurs over and over and over again in every generation until it is finally fulfilled, until that promise is finally fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we share with him in his final supper, it's as we share with him that we participate in this great salvation that is ours. We look back. We look back to the Passover. And in Christ, we have communion with every generation that has come before us that has ever trusted in God. We have fellowship with them. As we look back to the Passover, we look forward to the heavenly banquet, which is where the Lord's table and the Passover before it is pointing us to the heavenly banquet. And in Christ, we have hope of full communion with God, perfect fellowship with God, and perfect fellowship with each other. We look around today, and I invite you to do that. We look around today, and in Christ we have fellowship with this generation of believers. And it is written in his blood. Can I ask you, I know of no better way to end our reflection on the Passover than coming to the Lord's table. Can I ask you please just to take up the elements if you have them with you? We remember, we reflect, we receive by faith our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the day and age we live in. People are having to fumble with straws to take communion. We remember our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive by faith our Lord Jesus Christ.
who on the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had broken it, he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given his father thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on our Lord Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did for us, as we see it so visibly in the elements that you have given us, Lord, in this sacrament of the Lord's table, Father, help us to see the richness of the blessing that we have in Christ, that we enjoy in Christ. Help us not to, not to take any of those blessings for granted. Help us to reflect on, on your judgment on the false gods of this world. On the fact that you spared our houses. On deliverance into this mixed multitude, Lord. Deliverance into an abundance of blessing we carry with us the spoils of victory on this wonderful call to service a service that is true freedom and on this opportunity to remember it all and to participate in it Lord to participate in that salvation event as if we were in the upper room with the disciples Father, as we reflect on all this, please, by your Spirit, move us. In view of the mercies of God, help us to offer our whole lives, all that we are, all that we do, help us to offer it to you in an act of freely given worship, worship that defies words. Let every aspect of our lives be a living sacrifice to the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.